officers have the power over citizens of life and death, a power shared only by the state. Only the state can put you to death or a policeman with a gun. But then it was the police who said, what are you going to do next? I choked out more people than any other officer on the Portland Police Bureau. It was my go-to move. I mean, at the end of the day, when when you, when you have a problem, you cannot solve it by yourself. You're going to call us and we'll be there for service and we'll do our best to, to help you solve that problem. It is September 11, 1955. And there's something funky going on at the Benson Bubbler in downtown Canton. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. The police have to be society's mommy because society is so frickin' stupid. And a group of Cayuse men and leaders got together and made the decision that it was time for to dispatch Dr. Whitman. When it all fails, call the cops. Simply going in and arresting people and then leaving is not good enough. Somebody has to step in, and it has to be the police. Um, I'm not sure that it was as much racially motivated as that we just had dead possums and we hated the burger barn. Just to let you know that as a police officer, that I love you and I care about you. Taken the max yellow line to North Portland? Well, if you haven't, you should. When you get off at the Dancing Bear, right by the giant Paul Bunyan statue, you are in Kenton, a disparate community that has always held onto its individual character as the city gentrifies around it. Kenton is just about as old Portland as you will find any longer. As Heather Arndt Anderson detailed in her <clears throat> second book, Portland, a food biography. Kenton is endowed with the history of a beef slaughtering town. So many cattle were culled that area residents recalled that the Columbia Slough ran red with blood. Seems like Kenton has always been quirky, but not always as charming as you might find the neighborhood today. We asked J.B. Fisher, co-author of Portland on the Take, to collaborate on a kick-ass Oregon history podcast for our series, Policing in Oregon. JB is currently working on a book about the mid-20th century Portland vice probe, and we thought you might enjoy hearing about one segment in his project. That podcast follows. You can keep your What was the infamous 8212 club raid that went down in Kenton in the mid-1950s? Well, the 8212 club was an after-hours joint over in Kenton on 8212 North Denver Street, hence the name of the club. That was typical uh, that that was uh, 
often how the clubs were identified. Liquor drinks were 60 cents, and a dice table was almost always in operation. The 8212 was often packed to the hilt uh, after the licensed bars had closed, and law enforcement officers, um, both from Portland Police and Multnomah County Sheriff, were often seen in uniform in the club. So it was early morning on September 11th, 1955, and tipped off by some musicians over at the Nighthawk Cafe on North Interstate about a raid shaping up at the 8212 Club, Portland police officer Richard Sutter and his partner rolled up to the establishment around 3 a.m. What they noticed was a Multnomah County deputy sheriff's car parked outside. And as they were parking across the street, they observed the club's operator, Clifford Slim Bennett, coming from 8212 crossing Denver and then disappearing on Kilpatrick. According to Officer Sutter's own account, a few minutes later, Portland police car number 43 pulled up behind us and parked, and I later learned they were directed there to contact the sheriff, who at the time was standing on the sidewalk on the corner of Denver Avenue and Kilpatrick. Car number 43's mission was to pick up a bicycle that was abandoned at 8212 Denver Avenue. I drove the car caddy corner across the intersection and parked on Kilpatrick headed east. At this point, I observed car number 43 back around into a position on Kilpatrick and load the bicycle into the trunk. Uh, while car 43 was loading up the offending bike, Sutter observed Sheriff Terrence Doyle Shrunk, who would later become, of course, Portland's Mayor Terry Shrunk, walking east on Kilpatrick and stopping to converse with someone in double park Cadillac, and that someone turned out to be Slim Bennett. So Shrunk then crossed the street to talk with the owners of the Kenton Club, and Officer Sutter and his partner drove around the block and parked their vehicle just north of the 8212 Club. At this point, Sutter observed Slim Bennett cross Denver and enter the 8212. Shortly after, he came back outside carrying a small package. Crossing Denver again, he placed the package at the base of a Benson bubbler, drinking fountain near the intersection and then he returned to his parked Cadillac. Shortly after this, and this is really the clencher, Sheriff Shrunk appeared near the drinking fountain, picked up the package, and returned to his car. So meanwhile, inside the 8212, gambling and bootlegging activities were openly taking place and although several county police officers were observed in the club that early morning, the place really remained in operation until November of 1955 when another raid by county law enforcement sent Clifford Bennett packing. So by then, though, rumors were already circulating around Portland that the package Sheriff Shrunk had picked up that September night was filled with a $500 cash bribe. What was the impact of the 8212 raid on Shrunk's career? Well, when Sheriff Shrunk ran for mayor as a Democrat against sitting Republican Mayor Fred Peterson the following year, the 8212 club scandal really almost did Shrunk in. He was vilified as a teamster-loving, bribe-taking scoundrel by Wallace Turner and William Lambert in their Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage of Portland Vice for the Republican-backed Oregonian, which is interesting. Shrunk was called to testify in Washington, D.C. before the United States Senate McClellan Committee, which was investigating vice and corruption in Portland and was spearheaded by Chief Counsel Bobby Kennedy. And Shrunk famously failed a lie detector test. Uh, nevertheless, he was elected mayor and served from 1957 to 1972, which is the longest term of any mayor in Portland. And for the most part, Shrunk is remembered fondly by Portlanders, um, although they have to be willing, of course, to forgive his womanizing, his alcoholism, and the possibility of that bribe. 
Why was the Oregon State Police investigating the Portland Police Bureau, and what were they learning? So the Oregon State Police were charged with conducting an investigation into the Portland Vice situation in the spring of 1956. It was at this time that State Attorney General Robert Thornton, by order from Governor Elmo Smith, wrested control of the Portland Vice probe from Multnomah County District Attorney William Langley. Gets a little complicated, but the short of it was this. Portland Vice czar Big Jim Elkins, who you've probably heard of, had secretly made wire recordings purporting to reveal efforts by Seattle Teamsters to set up vice operations in Portland. Things like bootlegging, poker, uh, slots, of course the dreaded pinball, and probably prostitution and drugs, although Elkins always said that he wasn't involved in those industries. Um, among the players allegedly caught on these tapes, the secretly recorded tapes, was none other than Multnomah County DA Langley. So it was felt that he could not conduct a fair and independent investigation into the Portland Vice situation, especially when Langley seized control of the tapes in a raid on the house of Elkins employee, Ray Clark, and hastily attempted to turn the recordings over to a grand jury that he himself had convened. So when the Oregon State Police took over the investigation, they made clear that the Portland Police Bureau, headed by Chief Diamond Jim Purcell, would be among their primary targets. In the ensuing months, the Portland Police talked to investigators, but for the most part didn't disclose much in answer to questions about accepting payoffs, allowing vice activities such as bootlegging, prostitution, and gambling within the city. Most of the officers were pretty downright cagey. Hitchens advised that there was nothing else he could say concerning the current probe. He states that he knows the state police have a job to do and are doing it to the best of their ability, but that he has been before the grand jury and what is done is done and it is too late to change and that's the way it's got to be. Subject further stated that he does not know what they have or how much is true, and if they indict him for perjury, it will just have to be. A short interview was had with Lieutenant Crisp regarding his history with the police department and regarding his present duties in the department. It was obvious from the start that Lieutenant Crisp had a chip on his shoulder and stated that he resented being called out to this office and questioned by state police officers. When being asked the same question that had been asked all the captains and lieutenants, that is, have you ever instructed any of the men to refrain from making an arrest on illegally operated liquor joints and houses of prostitution for any reason whatsoever, Crisp jumped out of his seat and stated he resented the question. It was obvious that Lieutenant Crisp was too angry to continue the interrogation, Therefore, the interview was concluded. The Portland police had become even less willing to talk by the midsummer of 1956 after Chief Purcell wiretapped a phone conversation with Oregon State Police Superintendent Fod Mason, in which the suit basically agreed to tone down the probing of Portland police officers. Purcell. But here's the thing, Fod. You put yourself in my position. How would you feel if one of my men went to some of your men and said, we got definite proof that you're accusing us of taking 48,000 bucks. Mason. Well, I'd let him look into it. Purcell. Pardon me? Mason. I'd let him look into it. Purcell. Well, he is certainly entitled to, 
but I still would make you hot under the collar that they got your men and accuse you of something like that, w wouldn't it? Mason, oh, I don't know, Jim. I wouldn't be very happy about it, but I definitely would ask the men to look in and check it thoroughly. Purcell, well, I merely wanted to talk with you about it. Mason, well, I'll check into it, Jim. So meanwhile, and even without much help from Portland cops, the state police officers were finding out a lot about what was really going on in Portland. Basically, intel from cab drivers, vice operators, ex-police officers, restaurateurs, and a lot of other sources was revealing that Portland was wide open and that a well-established system of payoffs to the Portland Police Bureau was ensuring that illegal bootlegging, gambling, prostitution, and drug trafficking was all operating smoothly within the city. In fact, it was becoming clear that D.A. William Langley, along with Sheriff Shrunk and other county officials, had been in the process of trying to bust up a long-standing network of vice operations that really extended from the 1940s, when Mayor Earl Riley ran the city, through to the administration of Dorothy Lee, which interestingly was supposed to have been involving a crackdown on Vice, and then on into the current Fred Peterson administration. So Big Jim Elkins was certainly a key player, but there was also Clifford Slim Bennett of the 8212 Club. So who really was Clifford Slim Bennett? Well, in all that brouhaha about the 8212 Club raid, a few things were really not disclosed by the press during the time. The first was that this was by no means the first time that club had been raided. In fact, the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, the OLCC, raided the club three times from August 1954 to February 1955. And Oregonian readers were reassured in each of those cases that operator Slim Bennett and his associates were shutting down the place. But really more revealing was what the Oregon State Police investigators were learning about Bennett himself. It turned out that Portland was not by any means the only place where Bennett was active. A key part of the OSP investigation centered on the town of Prineville, Oregon, just outside of Bend, where Bennett was operating a brothel in the buildings of the old riding school there. Rumors were circulating in the press that Bennett paid a hefty bribe to the sheriff of Crook County, appropriately named, to operate there, and OSP found proof that he did, in fact, although the sheriff denied it in the papers and totally got off the hook. And Bennett's prostitution operation extended all the way to Great Falls, Montana, where he was also involved in bootlegging and drug trafficking operations across the Canadian border. Most of the press coverage of the 8212 Club raid described Bennett as the club's operator for Jim Elkins, but it was discovered in the OSP investigation that Bennett himself owned the club and several other bootlegging joints in Portland as well. This is a businessman. His business is organized crime. His products include gambling, narcotics, vice, loan sharking, stolen goods, labor racketeering, and goons for hire. Illegal gambling brings in his biggest profits, working capital to finance other criminal activities. Bribery and corruption of public officials, including some police officers, almost always accompany large-scale illegal gambling. The law enforcement officer must avoid any such involvement. Besides corrupting the community he has sworn to protect, involvement puts him in personal jeopardy. So who was really running the vice? 
Well, at this point, it should be emphasized that no one's hands were entirely clean in all of this. Langley, Shrunk, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, they all had some dirt. But we need to return to that raid on Ray Clark's place in May of 1956, where the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office seized wiretape recordings made by Jim Elkins. And we're getting ready to hand them over to D.A. Langley to use for a grand jury proceeding, just as Langley's investigation was being turned over to the state police. Why was Langley so intent on getting those recordings to a grand jury? Well, really the short answer is that Langley's office, along with the sheriff, was involved in trying to bust up or at least taking control of a number of different kinds of vice operations through the early 1950s. Um, an Oregonian article from February 27, 1955, for instance, describes how the OLCC made arrests, quote, on authority of several warrants issued by District Attorney William Langley at 8212 North Denver, along with known brothels, including the Canadian Hotel at 420 Southwest 4th Avenue, a house at 310 Northeast Rodney Avenue, another at 3039 North Williams, the Bellevue Hotel at 308 Southwest 11th Avenue, the Roseway Hotel at 231 Southwest Washington, and the Hotel Clare at 314 West Burnside. A lot of brothels. Interestingly, most of those locations were ignored by the McClellan Committee and the Oregonian in their subsequent investigations of Portland Vice during 1956 and 1957. So along with D.A. Langley's efforts to bust up corruption in the city, there are a number of factors that question the reliability of Jim Elkins' wire recordings. The first is that most of them are essentially inaudible. And when they were later admitted into the Attorney General uh, Thornton's grand jury investigation and into the McClellan committee hearings, juries were provided with type transcripts of conversation between Jim Elkins and his associates that don't match any of the extant recordings that I found at state archives. So about a dozen reel-to-reel tapes are housed in those archives, um, and they can be heard. Now, even if you think that those are the voices of Jim Elkins and his associates wringing their hands over how vice operations in Portland were being run, the Oregon State Police learned from reliable sources that Elkins, quote, went out to Chicago and hired voice actors to do the voices on the wire recordings. The Seattle racketeer Tom Blubber Maloney and Joseph McLaughlin, Portland Teamster Clyde Crosby, D.A. Langley, shit, even Elkins himself, all allegedly played by voice actors on the wire recordings. So who was bribing who? Well, first off, it's quite telling to note that out of nearly 150 people served with criminal indictments in the Portland Vice investigation, only Sheriff Shrunk and D.A. William Langley faced actual prosecution, and both were eventually acquitted, but their careers were certainly tarnished. Um, And then we need to return to the 8212 Club and Clifford Bennett. There's certainly a possibility that Shrunk actually took a bribe that night. He was part of the system, and everyone had to play along, right? But it's also quite likely that he was set up. Clifford Bennett certainly wasn't talking. He famously took the fifth when he testified before Bobby Kennedy in Washington, D.C., and he was all but left alone after the vice investigation ended when he moved over to Dallas-Port Washington across from the Dallas, Oregon, and successfully ran brothels there all the way until the early 1960s when federal agents raided the place. 
And speaking of the feds, here's what Bennett said about the 8212 raid in a confidential FBI report recently acquired through the Freedom of Information Act. Will you explain one thing to me, Jenkins? Tell me the name of one party that understands anything about it, huh? Can you tell me one from another? It started out as a big bluff. It started out as the biggest bluff to win the election. It didn't work. (laughs) I gave Shrunk $500. I told him he was a goddamn liar. I didn't do nothing. We also need to return to that police report from Portland officer Richard Sutter. At the end of his statement, Sutter admits that there were some definite gaps in his memory regarding what went down that night. He could not, quote, definitely remember who my partner was, nor am I sure who the officers were in car number 43. He explained that he and his mystery partner were on relief shift that night, but made clear at the opening of the report that he was only made aware of the raid by musicians at the Nighthawk Cafe while he and his partner were having a coffee break there. But it turns out that the OSP talked to one of the musicians, accordionist Louis John Bonancini. Bonancini informed us that he was employed as an accordion player at the Nighthawk, which is located in the Kenton District. He readily admitted to going to the 8212 Club on the night of September 11th with friend Charles Jefferts. Bonancini informed us that he was only up there a few minutes, that he ordered a drink and left. He states he apparently left this club before the Multnomah Sheriff and the deputies raided it a few minutes later. He could not give us any information as to observing any irregular movements. Neither did he observe any officers or deputy sheriffs in uniform. Hmm. So the guy who was supposed to have tipped off Officer Sutter about the raid didn't know about any raid, and Sutter himself was the only person who actually claimed to have seen Shrunk taking the package outside the club. That's fucking interesting, man. Fucking interesting. Things that make you go, hmm. As recently as a few years ago, the 8212 was owned by Grant High School legend and former Minnesota Timberwolf, Terrell Brandon. Brandon purchased the building in 2001, and while the rest of Kenton has gentrified some, and certainly flourished, the 8212 sat vacant and almost ignored for the past 16 years. Houseless squatters were living in the place as recently as 2010, and some Christmas decorations appeared in the window during the 2013 holiday season, but other than that, it has been perpetually locked up and almost lifeless. Across the street from the 8212, you will find an OLCC-licensed liquor store and an OLCC-licensed weed store. The 8212 has most recently been undergoing renovations and appears to be becoming an Airbnb. Weed, liquor, Airbnb. Goddamn new Portland. Well, at least J.B. Fisher and ribald resident historian Doug Kent Crispin can take advantage of this new Portland situation and enjoy themselves on the streets of Kenton. Nice. Yeah, crack open this nice plastic bottle. Well, <laughs> there you go. Fucking pint, you know. Nice. 
Mm, good stuff. All so right. what's your thought? Do you think um, Clay Bennett would approve of us smoking joint outside? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Slim would be proud. Slim yeah. would probably say that Portland has gone the way he wanted it to. Fucking old crow at <laughs> 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there we go. Sounds again. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle, bicycle. Kick-Ass Oregon History Season 10 is a production of ORHistory.com. It is written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available by request. We hope that you agree that today's episode contains some kick-ass Oregon history. If you like what you hear, you should give us money to make more. Visit ORHistory.com to learn how you can give us money once or over and over again. Follow us on the internet, Twitter, at Oregon underscore history. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram, too, at Kick-Ass Oregon History. As always, visit us on the web at ORHistory.com or send an email directly to historian Doug Kank Crispin. Oregon historian at gmail.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. I gave Shrunk $500. I told him he was a goddamn liar. I didn't do nothing. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. OrHistory.com